This is an ABC podcast. Hey ladies, as a warning, this episode contains a few swear words. Hi podcast fans, it's Yumi here. This next episode of Your Favourite Podcast is a bit different in that it was recorded in front of a live audience. So here's what's happened. The ABC has done a national survey. It was super interesting. More than 54,000 Australians responded and we found out what they think about life in Australia. As surveys do, it asked a bunch of questions, including questions about race. My favourite topic. And do you know what came back? Almost 80% of us think there's a lot of racism in this country. And nearly 60% believe white people have an unfair advantage. So we thought to ourselves, what does that actually look like every day for people who aren't white? And one thing that keeps coming up is work. There's so much research on how women of colour are treated differently to white people at work. For one, the Centre of Women Policy Studies has found that 21% of women of colour feel they aren't able to be themselves at work. You've probably heard of, and maybe even experienced, the glass ceiling. It's that invisible barrier preventing women from getting promoted beyond a certain point. But for women of colour, this ceiling isn't glass. You can't see through it. It's often impenetrable, with no vision of how to get to the next level. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about the concrete ceiling. For this live recording, we went to Parramatta in Sydney's western suburbs and spoke to women who reflected the community. We had three amazing ladies come and talk about their experiences. Shai Magdalene, an actor and director who was born in the Philippines and migrated to Australia when she was one. Sujatha Fernandez, a professor of political economy and sociology at the University of Sydney, who's a first-generation Indian-Australian and Shamala Eswaran, an Australian-born Indian who's a performing artist and the artistic director of Bindi Bosses, which teaches people about the diversity of South Asia through dance. Hi, everybody. This is exciting. Can I call you my bitches? (laughs) Yeah, okay, just checking. Thanks for coming, my bitches. Shamla, have you experienced the concrete ceiling? I think I've experienced the concrete ceiling without realising it because I now make a living out of being Indian. I've put myself in a position where I need my colour and my ethnicity to do my job and that's the position that I had to put myself in to be successful as a performing artist. Before I worked in human rights and in social policy Um, I worked at the Australian Human Rights Commission and the executive director was Indian. And at Barnardo's, I reported into an Indian woman, which is amazing. So it wasn't so much a concrete ceiling in that I thought, oh, well, there's already one there. Like, damn, I have to find something else to do. So there's only room for one. Yeah, I, I got the feeling that there was kind of only room for one person. And it wasn't even about Indian. It was like that box tick had already been ticked mm. of the ethnic woman in a position of power. Shy Magdalene, we're going to go to you next. Has the concrete ceiling held you back? Yes, I think it has. As I was growing up and wanting to 
explore possible avenues to become an actor or a performing artist or a director, I couldn't see myself, I couldn't see people who looked like me in public spaces, in those those artistic platforms. So I, d- I guess I just didn't even try to take certain avenues. Mm. And in fact, I don't think it's the whole reason why I've become a director and started working behind the scenes. But I think the combination of not seeing people who looked like me in those public forums definitely um, influenced my decision to stay a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah, and I'm the same because there was no one like like mm. us on TV. Yeah. Sujatha, Professor, what is your take on the concrete ceiling? So, like the others have said here today, I think it's a very real thing. Um, For me, the way that I've experienced it is always having to do a lot more than my white colleagues in order to reach the same level as they have. I had to publish more books to get promoted to the same level. I had to work twice as hard in everything. And I could only do it in the US. I don't think I would have ever been able to become a professor of political economy if I'd gone through a PhD degree and gone through the channels here because it's so difficult here. I had to do it in the US and work in the US for 10 years at a major university in order to get an offer here in Australia. So I I think it's a very real thing. At the same time, I'm a little wary of the term because I think like the concept of glass ceiling, it also has a kind of idea of individual progression of women, right? That it's about you as an individual progressing and going for a higher level when really a lot of the struggles and and movements that brought women of colour together were about lifting from the bottom up, thinking about all women, about uplifting all women. And Mm. and I'm, I'm a bit worried that sometimes terms like glass ceiling and concrete ceiling focus on like, well, why don't we have any CEOs of this company and of that company? And it focuses on the very top when I think that's kind of emulating like a sort of Hillary Clinton white feminism rather than thinking about what a a different kind of feminism would look like that included all women of colour. So I think we agree that there's a barrier that exists uh, for women of colour. Can we just talk about the term women of colour because it is contested. Some people find it very offensive. Where do you sit with that word? I proudly identify as a woman of colour now. I grew up wanting to be like the people that I saw around me. So it's a big deal for me to be spending most of my time now wearing a bindi and wearing, you know, traditional jewellery, but sneakers, I've got to keep it real. Um, (laughs) Because growing up, in a very short period of time, I learned to erase and adapt to what I saw around me. I would be in the backyard tanning because I grew up in the Southern Shire. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I've got a head start. (laughs) And in my culture... In, in Indian culture, we've got a problem with colorism where fairness is privileged. So for my mother, who was a victim of that in Fiji for being too dark, she just thought I was insane. Because she's like, what are you doing? I've come all the way to Australia to give you a new opportunity and you're out there getting dark. Like, <laughs> you're doing what got me ostracized with my community. So it's very complex. Um, but I think Women of colour is important because I really identify as a brown woman, but there's also a shared experience of women feeling othered that I think solidifies us. And I think it's a, for me, it's a useful term now. Sujatha? Women of colour is something that comes out of of a sort of feminist movement and something that I was very involved in 25 years ago when I was Mm. at university. And so I proudly remember that history and I use Mm. it in in that context. There are certain things to be aware of about using that term women of colour. One is that um, not all women identify. So for instance, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women say, you know, we don't see ourselves as 
women of colour, we want to identify as First Nations, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, because our experiences are different. And so it's a kind of catch-all phrase that, that can sometimes obscure the differences between us. But at the same time, I think it's also a helpful category for me to use and to think about the specific struggles that I face. Okay, so here's what I'm getting from all of you. This is what, what you've said has in common. You're all hardworking and you want credit for the work that you do, but you're not getting it because people are blinded by the fact that you're not white. Is that right? Does that sound like the manifestation of a concrete ceiling? Yeah. yeah. And it's exhausting mm-hmm. having to constantly be your ethnicity every day, um, especially when you're first generation because we're, f- we're separated from it. We are forced into a situation where we have to become the beacons of knowledge for our entire country, mm. which we didn't grow up in. And in a lot of cases, we didn't even grow up speaking our language at home because that was part of the assimilation process. So people would turn to us as these authorities and and um, just earlier, I think I asked Shai something about the Philippines. I went, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm doing to you what people do to me. I'm, I'm assuming because you're Filipino or you've got Filipino heritage, you'll know the answer to this because it's about your country. But you don't. And I don't. I'm, and part of my journey has been to discover that and then share it back with you. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, like, as somebody from a Japanese-Australian background, there's a real crushing shame yes. when I can't answer those questions and I'm, I'm deeply embarrassed yeah. that somebody else might have better Japanese than me and they've got blue eyes and blonde hair. I'm like, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, I want to unpack how the concrete ceiling manifests. And I think from what I've heard and read, there's a bunch of things that contribute to this. Okay, so it's lack of opportunity. It's unconscious bias from those around you, particularly those senior to you um, and those you work with. But it's also the confidence gap. So that's where it's your own inner voice telling you negative things. Do you agree on that? Yeah, absolutely. That concrete ceiling is just so invisible. And I think that the systematic racial bias is just, it's so subtle, its effect on you. And it's just so insidious. Mm. And it's, again, it's that that thing of, I don't deserve to have these opportunities. I don't deserve to talk about this. I don't deserve to voice my concerns because maybe it's not really there. That's Shai speaking, who is an actor and director. Sujatha, in academia, I want to ask you about students from diverse backgrounds that you teach. What does it mean for them to see so few women of colour in those senior professorial roles? I think it has a real impact. And when I, you know, I spent 18 years working and teaching in the US, and when I moved back to Australia, among one of the things that I looked forward to doing was to actually being that person that I wanted to have up there when I was a student, to look up and have that professor who I could say, you know, there's somebody who looks like me who's teaching. And so I have to say that's been one of the most gratifying things about returning here and having students of colour in my classrooms and I look at them and I'm and I just it brings a tear to my eye I'm like I was you I was you all those years ago and I just really you know hope that that can be more because I feel like that's not the norm and Shai I wanted to ask you about when you were a kid you were so into it into being creative and being at a like an actor that you used to write scripts and screenplays how did you imagine those characters can you tell us about them they didn't look like me at all <laughs> so yeah you, you so used I used would... to write white 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I I just did it for fun. But yeah, those those characters, they were white characters. I That was all that I was seeing on TV. So that was like, okay, so that's what a film is like. That's what a TV show is like. I'm going to write in these characters that reflect what I see in, in the world around me. Mm. Shai, when you were doing acting, mm. you were exoticised quite a lot. Can you explain how? Yeah, so for a while I had an agent who would just forward me all of these castings that were... The description was exotic Eurasian. I was receiving a lot of them for a while and I guess I just got really sick of it. I no longer have an agent because I'm focusing on my theatre work because I don't want to be identified as mm. that. Yeah. There's a parallel in academia with both what both of you are talking about is that you're sort of expected to study your own culture so yes. that people would expect me to study India, which I started doing because I love India. And then I just said, no way, I'm going to study Latin America. And people ask me sometimes, like, why? You know, I get asked it so often that I've actually begun both my books about those countries with this particular question. Why do you study Cuba? Why do you study Venezuela? And and white person would never get asked that question. Yeah. 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 Right? It's only yeah. because I'm... Indian that it's seen as weird that I wouldn't be studying India and I would choose to study Latin America. I want to talk about mentors. One of the obvious problems with this concrete ceiling is that on the other side of it, there are no powerful women of colour or culturally and linguistically diverse women to pull you up. So we all know this, but mentors naturally gravitate toward people who look like them. Sajatha, with your decades spent working in the US, you say that there are a lot more mentors who were women of colour over there, did that make a real difference? It made a huge difference. And I had, throughout my time there, I had senior women of colour who were always available to to talk to me, to, to just uh, guide me through the particular hoops that women of colour have to go through in order to, you know, survive really, survive in academia. And Honestly, I, I don't know how people can really do without that. And, and that's really where I see in Australia so many women of colour struggling. I have mentors here and there are no women of colour in the senior level, so or very few. So it is mostly white women who have been incredible and who've been great. But I also feel like I come here in a much stronger position. If I hadn't been, if I had been much at a junior, younger position, needing that support from older women of colour, I, I wouldn't really have that. And so this is not just about, you know, well, we, we can set in place mentorship programs and we need to do that, but it's also about increasing the numbers, doing things like what they do in the US, which is called cluster hiring. You don't hire one person of colour and put them in a workplace where they're among all white people and have absolutely no support. You hire a bunch of them and then put them together so that they have each other for support. That's what needs to happen mm. and, and it really doesn't happen here. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask a blunt question. And I'm going to ask you, Professor Sajatha, do you think that people, because you're brown, they expect you to be dumb? I don't know. I don't know that I would say that, that, I, that people expect me to be dumb. The difference I've found more is it happened to me a few months ago when I was going up to the podium to give a lecture for my 700-person intro to sociology class and the, the old white professor who was finishing up over there, he just looked at me and he said, and he just ignored me. And I said, oh, excuse me, you know, I'm, I'm here to give the lecture. And he looked at me, he's like, oh, I thought you were a student. Oh, ha, 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 you know, in this really jovial way. But it's because you look so young. <laughs> Thank you. But it's, it really just takes away um, your feeling that you have a right to be there, that mm. you are qualified in your own right, that you're there because they know your expertise. Do people have negative expectations towards you, Shy? 
I guess it's that same thing of being the authority on your experience, your migrant experience, mm. and your culture as well. I've had people tell me that I should be writing about my migrant experience. And that's not something that I've been interested in at all. And I've got very particular things that I want to explore that aren't necessarily about me talking about coming to Australia. Certainly there are people who do that. Mm. And I think there is a place for that. But not all of us, you know, need to be writing about or creating work about being a migrant just because we are. Shamala, part of your work is going into schools, teaching kids different kinds of South Asian dance. Tell me about um, one of the incidents that happened to you at preschool. So I've got a show called Bolly Kids and I use it as a way to talk about empathy and cultural diversity and inclusion and I take in spices because that was my first experience of feeling excluded was when I opened my lunchbox and it's like your food stinks and so do you, we don't want to sit with you. So I explain that to the kids before they go to school. So I open with a Bollywood dance just to lure them in. And I had one three-year-old, I asked afterwards to get the age, he started chanting, go back to where you came from. And I've never, I'm getting teary thinking about it because it was such a confusing moment for me. I do preschool shows because of the love and the understanding that I receive from kids. And it was so confusing because he was saying it with a huge smile on his face and no malice. He was just saying the words because he'd already learnt at the age of three to link my appearance with those words and saying those words. And then the kid next to him joined in and started saying it as well. It was really hard to deal with. I had not prepared for that. So the best I could think of is I just kept going. All the educators were mortified. And the interesting thing is they don't want to talk about that either. I, I had to bring it up at the end. There was no apology. There was just silence. So by continuing the performance, I actually made the kid the subject of getting dressed up in Indian clothes. And I asked him if he had fun. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, aren't you glad I didn't go back to where I came from? Because you wouldn't have had fun. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> And I don't know if that makes a change, but I think seeing difference and appreciating, not just seeing, celebrating and appreciating difference at a young age is what's going to change things. I am very sceptical about the ability of the older generations to change their mindset. It's having to work with the younger generations and in some cases they're schooling their grandparents. They're pulling up their parents in some situations. How did you feel that night when you went to bed? I just felt like I'm doing the right thing. Right. Yeah. It justified the Bollywood dancing for me. I did also want to... I know that the Kerri-Ann thing comes up a lot when my name comes up and I think that's an example of the way that the concrete ceiling has worked for me. I think it would be dishonest if I didn't mention it. My main work is in TV and radio broadcasting. That's my job. And when I started, there was just an infinity, like you were saying, shy of white faces. And it hasn't changed. Like, I'd love to say that it, cha it has changed, but it's basically like white, 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 Walid Ali, white, 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 white. <laughs> And I think that there's pressure to be a model minority, like a Leland Chin or a Brooke Boney, and you can't have nuance, you can't have moments of flawed humanity or rage. I mean, I think women aren't allowed to have rage anyway, but we can't, definitely can't be doing that on TV because we've got to be so extra perfect all the time. And the way that the Kerri Ann thing I think has played out for me is that basically... A shitstorm erupted uh, because I saw what looked like racism and said that sounds very racist to me. And what has been the result is that ceiling has been 
smoothed over and reinforced against me penetrating that space because I caused trouble last time I was there. So rather than the racism being extracted from the situation and it being opened and smoothed for people like us, I've actually um, found that doors have been shut to me in my work, which I do to support my family because of that. So I would say that the concrete ceiling feels very real to me this year. So and for defending First Nations, what does that say? That was very humbling, the way that First Nations people showed up for me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Let's talk about white fragility. <laughs> so it was coined by a white sociologist from the States, Robin D'Angelo. So white fragility is basically when you talk about the advantages perhaps that white people might have, white people get super uncomfortable and it's just that, that experience of how that discomfort can sometimes come out as uh, defensiveness or even anger, um, sometimes wanting to slap down the conversation or cry. Have you experienced white fragility? Oh, absolutely, up until last week. So obviously I was quite a different person when I was growing up and I do maintain some tenuous contact with some people that I went to high school with. And I got invited to see a rock band at Cronulla RSL. I kindly declined. I said, look, I'll happily see you play. You know, I, I grew up learning dance in Cronulla and feeling very um, excluded. When I explained, you know, as a person of colour, I don't feel particularly safe. Like, that's a bit of a double whammy. It's an RSL and it's in Cronulla. No thanks. She said, I, I just see, you know, I, I, you had to remind me that you were of colour because I don't see that. I went, oh, okay, well, that's because you don't have to see it because you don't have to live it. She said, oh, don't make me feel bad. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a jerk, you know. I do understand that your experience is different to mine, but I just see love, which makes me feel bad, makes me feel like I'm being a bad person and then it puts me in a position where I have to make her feel better and then just silence myself. And Robin D'Angelo talks about the lack of racial stamina. The onus is on us to explain what's happening. They then say, oh, I feel attacked. I feel like you're misunderstanding me. Don't misunderstand me. And then you're like, oh, OK, they're there. They're. Yeah, you end up apologising. Yeah, yeah. Totally. You, it's your responsibility and then we lose to our comfort voice, them. But I think she calls it weaponised fragility. It's actually not fragility at all. It's silencing us and it's stopping us from allowing us to say what's going on. And there's a very good reason for that because if you disrupt that balance, then the power changes and there's a vested interest in maintaining things the way they are. When casting this panel, we wanted to represent the biggest ethnic cultures here in Parramatta, which are Indian, East Asian and Filipino. But we did also want to hear from Indigenous women because me shutting up and amplifying the voices of Indigenous women is one of the best ways to be an ally in this excavation of the concrete ceiling. You're about to hear from Tash. She's a UN woman from the south coast of New South Wales. She's 30, lives in Sydney and works in public health. Tash doesn't use the term woman of colour, but says she gets treated differently at work because she's Aboriginal. As a fair-skinned Aboriginal, often at work when I'm speaking to people and it comes up in conversation, I feel that people immediately treat me differently because I am Aboriginal. In my work, if I meet someone and I introduce myself and the conversation steers towards my identity because it's not something that you go, hey, I'm Aboriginal, and then they realise, oh, that I'm an Aboriginal woman because they, you know, without seeing 
a black face, they assume that I'm I'm not Aboriginal, then their demeanour changes in the way that, oh, it's like that sensitivity. Oh, you know, and they've done all these cultural competence and cultural sensitivity training that makes them culturally aware or as if they have to tiptoe in the conversation. But we're all exactly the same. I don't feel that there needs to be a different treatment in the conversation just because they've found out that I'm an Aboriginal woman. Nova Perris is the first Indigenous woman to serve in the federal parliament and, unrelated, she also won an Olympic gold medal. She's been Young Australian of the Year and received an Order of Australia in 1997. My racism happened here in this country when I was playing at the National Hockey League level. And that was from being called a black bitch, people wouldn't shake my hand. I had a fellow athlete call me a nigger several times and that was taken and dealt with, but not straight away. We were in a country and there was myself and a fellow Australian athletes were all sitting around and, you know, he just said to me, pass the salt nigger. And I was <gasps> like, what, what, what did you just say? And the worst thing was no one stood up for me. No one called him out and said, dude, what the hell have you just said? So I had to, you know, I just said, you know, get up and get it yourself. But I walked away hurt and I thought I've got to do something about this. And I, and I did take it to another level, but yeah, so it was a fellow Australian on the way to um, to world, uh, world Athletics Championships. Not only did I have the courage and, and I guess the ability to go on and have the strength to wear the green and gold, double whammy of me being able to um, try and express myself as a proud Aboriginal athlete, but at the same time I, I suffered you know racism during that time. I want white people in this country to understand the historical truths of this country. We can no longer just continue going forward without acknowledgement of the truth, the historical truth of this country. All right, we're going to go to the room now. This is a question for women of colour in the room. What do you wish white people understood about you? Do you have a comment you want to add to the conversation? What do you want white women to know? Hi, I'm Claire. I'm Mertian. I'd like to say to um, other women in the room, it's often you and me um, probably staring to a face of white men, particularly in the industry that I work in, and just have my back. I'm noticing things like I'm flipping through an entire pamphlet or a catalogue and I'm not seeing any other coloured faces other than white. If I raise it, just have my back. I'm a little bit scared to bring it up. Um, I might be called a super lefty or, you know, kind of swatted away. Um, I've got lots of other intelligent things to say as well, but unfortunately that's the thing that I feel I have to lead with. Thank you. I grew up in the Sutherland Shire and I was the only dark-skinned, dark-haired, dark-featured girl. And in terms of work, there are moments where if I'm a new person and there's someone else that's new as well, that person, if they're white, will normally get asked to go out for a coffee before I do. That is real, even though I might think, oh, it's just me, it's just me. Again, it's no, it's actually happening and it's real. So just take me to coffee. <laughs> it's pretty much what I'm saying. My name's Efwa. I come from Ghana. I was born in Australia, just in Westmead, so just a suburb over. 
Um, what I want everyone to know, but specifically white people, is that I don't owe it to anybody to prove myself. If my resume says that I'm an undergraduate student, I'm an undergraduate student. You don't need any extra proof from anybody else. You just need to believe what I'm saying. Because if I was white, you would not ask me several questions to, to try and prove who I am. My dad has told me, like, from, like, the word go, he's told me that, look, you as a black woman are going to have to work harder than anybody. Yes, we can all say like there's a uh, umbrella of women of color there's even a ladder in that so I have to climb that before I can even come to the surface level and then come and climb with the white people when really I'm, I'm not someone who should be put underground neither should any other woman of color if someone specifically someone of color is coming to you and saying this is who I am believe them that's all you have to do because if a white person was coming to you and saying this is who I am you're not going to question them so don't question me or my people either. My name is Catherine and I was born in Zimbabwe but raised in Australia. One thing that I would like all people, including white people, to know is equality is great, but let us work from an equity standpoint. Let us recognise the differences of people, of their culture, where they come from, the food that they eat, but let not that difference be a point of inequality. I don't like my hair being touched. It's a personal preference of mine. But I know many of my Caucasian friends that love it when you run your fingers through their hair and they're just like, ah, I love it. I don't. <laughs> but that difference or any other difference that my ethnicity, my ambition, what I do, let that not be a point of difference, but a point of learning. Thank you. All right, last question. Hello. Yeah, for me, I would like not to be told about the accent because at 60, there's no way I'll change my accent. <laughs> you pronounce something and somebody tells me, you're supposed to pronounce it this way. And when I came here, I used to feel, oh my God, how I want to talk, but I don't want to talk because I'll say my accent. But nowadays I say, it depends who taught you English. So I would like you to know when I pronounce something, communication is more important. You understand what I'm saying, not the accent I'm having. Thank you. Thank you. Last question to leave. How can we be better allies? I think we need to remember that diversity is our natural state. Before colonisation, there were, I think it's estimated, 250 Aboriginal languages, like 800 dialects. So this whole conversation that we're having about having to, like, be diverse, like, Australia was diverse and it is diverse and we have to privilege that and go back to the root of where that fracture started. And I really think it goes back to First Nations. Like if we don't give them the respect, how can the rest of us as people of a colour expect that we're going to get respect? And I think we, we as people of colour need to champion that as well because if that doesn't get healed, Australia won't get healed. I think also it's just about listening and um, not jumping on the defence when we start to talk about things that are really difficult for us to talk about, those labels that have been placed on us, um, moments where we feel really uncomfortable in certain situations. It's, it's about not dismissing that and really being open to learning and trying to understand the perspective that we're living from because it is different. How can you learn about it if you, I guess, don't put a finger 
mm. on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and a name yeah. on it. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I agree with what you're saying and I agree about amplifying the voices of First Nations women. Even if we feel downtrodden, we can absolutely support people around us who require it and require that amplification. Something that I try to practice in my life is reading books by women of colour, watching television shows where the showrunner is a woman of colour, a scriptwriter, the actors, consuming the culture of women of colour and maybe tossing away um, books by white men, particularly dead ones, because we've done that. And I have to thank you so much for showing up today. Thank you for being our audience. And could you please thank Shamala, Sujatha and Shai for, for being on Ladies We Need to Talk. You have just heard from actor and director Shai Magdalene, Professor Sujatha Fernandez and performing artist Shamala Eswaran. A big thanks to them and to all the women who joined us in Parramatta and shared their perspectives. This episode is part of the ABC's Australia Talks project, which aims to find out what Australians are really thinking and feeling and using those findings to help us all learn something about each other. You can find Ladies We Need to Talk on a podcast app or on the ABC Listen app. And on that topic, please share it with one of your friends who needs this podcast in her life. Word of mouth is way better than any kind of advertising, can I just say. Ladies is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. This episode was produced by Cassandra Steeth and Jane Curtis. The live show was produced by Monique Bowley with sound by Simon Branthwaite and Matt Hiley. Our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. The manager of Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon. <laughs> <laughs>